Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, torture, and drug abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Up-and-coming cocaine kingpin Pablo Escobar was waiting to cross the border between Peru and Ecuador in a yellow Renault 4, a small boxy hatchback. He was only about 26, but he was already building his empire. Pablo rolled forward for inspection. Border officials examined his Renault. Pablo fidgeted impatiently. He had good reason to be nervous. There were a few kilograms of coca paste, the raw material of cocaine, stashed in the passenger side wheel. Pablo tapped his fingers on the window frame as a border official searched the interior of the car. It felt like the official was moving as slowly as possible. The moment the inspection was complete, Pablo stepped on the gas, forcing the officials to spring back. They wouldn't forget this yellow car and its impatient driver. But Pablo didn't mind. His impatience at the checkpoint wasn't about the fear of being caught. He was racing his cousin Gustavo to see who could get back to Medellin with the coca paste the fastest. And Pablo hated to lose. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. 
This is our second episode in a four-episode series on legendary cocaine trafficker Pablo Escobar. Last week, we heard about how Pablo's violent childhood informed his anti-imperialist ideals and attracted him to a criminal lifestyle. During Pablo's early career, between 1971 and 1975, he learned three important skills that would be key to his success— smuggling, bribery, and murder. This week, we'll witness the beginnings of Pablo's cocaine empire and how he expanded it exponentially by joining forces with other Colombian drug traffickers. We discussed in our last episode how Pablo spent three years working as a fixer for Rafael Puente, a contraband smuggler. But after a bust almost got him arrested in around 1974 or 1975, Pablo knew he had to go into business for himself. If Pablo was running his own operation, he would be able to call the shots without directly handling illegal goods. More power and money, less risk. He'd made enough money working for Rafael that he could pay other people to do the dirty work. So he invested in an emerging market, cocaine. In 1970, the United States government designated cocaine a controlled substance. The new government rules made cocaine riskier to produce and distribute. The higher risk meant the price skyrocketed. For Pablo, a single truckload of cocaine could make him as much money as an entire convoy of trucks full of other contraband. He used the money he'd made smuggling as the seed investment to set up his own cocaine manufacturing infrastructure. First, Pablo and his cousin, Gustavo Gaviria, made plans to travel to Peru with a man who called himself La Cucaracha, the cockroach. The cockroach knew the best place to find the substance that would get his cocaine business off the ground, coca paste. Coca paste is a mixture of pulverized coca leaves and other chemicals, including kerosene, sulfuric acid, and sodium bicarbonate. Combined, these substances form the active ingredient in white powder cocaine. Deep in the Peruvian jungle, the cockroach introduced Pablo and Gustavo to their coca paste supplier. For their first order, Pablo and Gustavo negotiated a price of $60 per kilo. They only had a small compartment in the front right fender of their yellow Renault 4 to smuggle the paste back to Medellin, so they only purchased a few kilos. Once the coca paste was safely stowed, Pablo and Gustavo headed for the Ecuadorian border. But a few miles before the border crossing, they pulled over. They drove into the jungle. Up ahead, partially obscured in the jungle foliage, was an identical yellow Renault 4 hatchback. Well, identical except for a single detail, the license plate. Pablo and Gustavo transferred the package out of the car with a Peruvian license plate into the car with an Ecuadorian license plate. They sailed through the Ecuadorian border. When they approached the Colombian border, they repeated the same process with another car. They'd predicted that driving with a native license plate would always raise less suspicion, and they were right. 
they drove the coca paste into the small town of Belen on the western outskirts of Medellin. Pablo had purchased a house in a residential neighborhood there and remodeled it to suit his specific illegal needs. The entire first floor had been transformed into a single giant industrial lab space to cook the coca paste into cocaine. The second floor served as a live-in apartment for the workers, who Pablo referred to as the cooks. Pablo had the kitchen outfitted with several old refrigerators repurposed as ovens so the coca paste could be cooked in large batches. According to Pablo's brother Roberto, the several-step chemical process of transforming the paste into powdered cocaine, quote, is no more difficult than baking a cake. All the windows in the house were covered to avoid alerting the neighbors. But there was nothing Pablo could do about the intense chemical smell that wafted from the house. Even though Pablo was only making his first batch of cocaine, he could already see that this house wasn't sustainable long term. He was already thinking bigger. Once Pablo's first batch of cocaine was synthesized, he had to get it to the United States. Pablo organized a system of trucks to transport the drugs from the laboratory in Belen to the airport. At the airport, workers would package the cocaine and label it with brand names of Pablo's choice, usually gems like emerald and diamond. Once the cocaine was packaged, it was packed inside scrapped airplane tires. Each tire could hold 20 to 40 kilos. The tires were loaded inside a small single propeller airplane, a Piper Cub. Pablo had gotten the plane stripped down so that the interior was basically just a pilot seat and a console. He also added an extra compartment for additional fuel. The setup maximized the load the plane could carry without having to stop to refuel. A single pilot would fly the plane all the way to Miami at a low altitude to avoid radar detection. After landing, the tires would be offloaded and taken to a dump. Unknown to the garbage truck driver, a Miami employee of Pablo's would follow the truck to the dump collect the tires, and bring the drugs to distributors. And just like that, Pablo's cocaine was being sold in the United States, and money was headed back to Colombia. Pablo used to make about $250,000 a month running the contraband caravans for Rafael Puente. Now, a single airplane load of cocaine could net Pablo over $2 million and the American market was hungry. Within months, Pablo was sending two or three planes a week. As Pablo's organization grew, he expanded his fleet of cars so both he and Gustavo could drive at the same time. They often raced each other back to Medellin on their supply runs from Peru. But soon after that, Pablo remembered why he'd started his own operation, so he could call the shots. Pablo stopped driving and focused on expansion. He replaced himself with several drivers who could smuggle coca paste into Medellin by the truckload. By 1976, Pablo was 26 years old and living large. In March, he married the 15-year-old he'd been pursuing since she was 13, Maria Victoria Henao. 
Pablo moved his wife into a fine stucco house in a wealthy neighborhood in Medellin. He hired armed guards to protect him and his family. He ate at the best restaurants and encouraged Maria to shop at expensive boutiques. Pablo's brother Roberto still handled Pablo's finances. Roberto suggested Pablo tone down his lifestyle and get out of the drug business quickly. He was making so much money he could stop working after a few months and their entire family could live comfortably for the rest of their lives. But Pablo wouldn't even consider it. He had tasted the money and the power cocaine trafficking could provide, and he would be hooked on it for the rest of his life. Things wouldn't stay rosy for Pablo forever. In late 1976, he had his first serious run-in with law enforcement. One of his drivers, who ferried coca paste from Peru to Colombia, went by the name Gavilan, which means vulture. Vulture was well-paid, and he spent his earnings on ostentatious clothes and an expensive car. He had a relative who worked for Departamento Administrativo de Seguridad, or DAS, the Colombian equivalent to the FBI. And Vulture's extravagant purchases did not go unnoticed. The DAS opened an investigation, and one day they stopped Vulture on his route. They told him to call his boss, and Vulture complied, assuming they were expecting a bribe. Pablo wasn't surprised to receive Vulture's call. This was business as usual in Colombia. But when Pablo arrived, he was arrested by two DAS agents, Luis Vasco and Gilberto Hernandez. Pablo's mugshot after that arrest has become an infamous image. He's grinning back at the camera, looking unsettlingly pleased with himself. That haunting photograph was published in the paper, and his mother, Hemilda, cried for hours. That was how she learned that Pablo was a drug trafficker. Pablo spent two months in jail, waiting for trial. It was a relatively cushy situation. The jail director allowed Hemilda to deliver Pablo's meals, and Pablo was allowed recreation on an outdoor soccer field. Pablo assumed he would be able to pay off the judge overseeing his case to assure an acquittal. But his trial ended up scheduled in a military court. Military judges were notoriously difficult to corrupt. Now Pablo panicked. He'd never anticipated a situation he couldn't buy his way out of. Pleading frayed nerves and insomnia, Pablo convinced a jail guard to let him take a stroll outside at night. He disappeared off the grounds. Pablo would have been content to simply return to work, but his mother, Hemilda, wouldn't hear of it. The director of the jail had bent the rules for both of them, and she couldn't stand the thought that the kind director would be punished for Pablo's escape. She insisted that Pablo return to jail. But Pablo wasn't about to play by the rules and risk a long prison sentence. So he and his mother came up with a compromise. They returned to the jail a few days later with the x-rays of a very sick person. Pablo claimed they were his. The judge took pity on Pablo, and he was able to strike a deal. No trial, and Pablo stayed out of prison. But that wasn't the end of the story. 
Luis Vasco and Gilberto Hernandez, the two DAS agents who originally arrested Pablo, stopped him again a few months later. But this time, they didn't arrest him. They kidnapped him and brought him to a remote garbage dump. They forced Pablo down on his knees. They beat him. Pablo was sure he was going to die, so he began bargaining for his life. The DAS agents ended up accepting an offer of a million pesos to let him live. Pablo was a proud man. He couldn't abide the disrespect of being put on his knees and beaten. He accepted kidnapping for ransom as a regular part of business, but he couldn't tolerate the unnecessary humiliation. A few days later, the same DAS agents tried to kidnap another one of Pablo's workers. But instead, the agents were the ones who ended up kidnapped. Stories vary, but Pablo's brother Roberto heard that the agents were brought to a strange house and forced to their knees. We don't know for certain what happened to agents Luis Vasco and Gilberto Hernandez. There's not even a consensus about how many times they were shot. But we do know they did not survive their abduction. From then on, Pablo's name was known and feared among Colombian traffickers and law enforcement alike. Pablo's business mantra, plata o plomo, silver or lead, was a way of life for everyone who came in contact with him. But Pablo never started with violence. He knew that business was better when bullets were used sparingly. And right now, early in his career, he needed partners. Cooperative allies could expand his business into an empire. Up next, Pablo's diplomacy and leadership in a crisis give birth to the Medellin cartel. Now, back to the story. Throughout the late 70s, Pablo Escobar built a cocaine pipeline from Colombia to the United States. By early 1981, when Pablo was 31, he was among the biggest cocaine traffickers in Colombia. But Pablo wasn't the biggest. There were several other traffickers moving the same product Pablo was through a variety of methods. The U.S. market was big. There was plenty of room for all of them. But Pablo still considered these other traffickers his competition. A fight over territory would have been inevitable until something unexpected united them. On the evening of November 12, 1981, Martha Ochoa was walking across the campus of her university, the University of Antioquia in Medellin. It was a quiet evening. She heard the sound of a car accelerating nearby. When she turned around, she could see the vehicle. It was speeding right at her. Martha ran for the safety of a building nearby, but the speeding car quickly overtook her. The door opened, and all she could see was the muzzle of an AK-47. Terrified, Martha surrendered and got into the car. It zoomed off into the night. Martha was the youngest sister in the Ochoa family. Her three brothers, Jorge, Juan David, and Fabio, had inherited several businesses from their father, Fabio Sr., including horse breeding, restaurants, and cocaine trafficking. 
Pablo knew Jorge from their soccer games on the streets of Medellin as children. Jorge was quiet, committed to his family, and staunchly sober. Pablo respected him. When Pablo heard about Martha's kidnapping, he called everyone he knew in the cocaine trade to attend an open meeting at his luxury getaway, Hacienda Napoles, a couple hours outside of Medellin. The night of the meeting, the massive compound was packed. Over 200 people, from humble pilots and small-time smugglers to powerful drug lords on par with Pablo, arrived to take part in the proceedings. Pablo received such a good turnout because Martha's kidnapping was relevant to all of them. The guerrilla group who had taken Martha, M-19, had been kidnapping cocaine traffickers, their families, and key members of trafficking organizations for years. Kidnapping drug dealers was lucrative and low risk for M-19. They had the money to pay high ransoms, and they were not likely to go to the police for help. Pablo stood before the enormous crowd he'd assembled, which included all the important players in the industry. Their presence was proof of the influence and respect he commanded. Looking at them, Pablo didn't feel nervous. He felt powerful. He was always at his best in front of a captive audience. Pablo told the crowd that it was time to fight back. He proposed that all the traffickers band together to form an army called Muerte a Sequestradores, abbreviated M-A-S. The name translates to Death to Kidnappers. All the traffickers present agreed to put two million pesos and 10 sicarios, hitmen, toward the cause. Together, this newly formed army would hunt M-19 the way M-19 had been hunting them. The first step was getting the word out. Copies of the MAS manifesto were loaded onto a plane. It flew over a soccer field in Medellin, where thousands of spectators were gathered to watch a game. Just as the match began, the hatch of the plane opened. The leaflets fell from the sky, covering the soccer pitch. The announcement introduced the MAS and their basic objective the public and immediate execution of all those involved in kidnappings, beginning from the date of this communique. They even went so far as to describe their methods, promising that kidnappers will be hung from the trees in public parks or shot and marked with the sign of our group, MAS. The missive urged the public to participate promising a reward of 20 million pesos for any information that resulted in the capture of a kidnapper. If finding the kidnappers themselves was not possible, then according to the MAS, retribution will fall on their comrades in jail and on their closest family members. MAS was as good as their word. Within six weeks of that meeting at Hacienda Napoles, over 100 members of M-19 were dead. Their deaths were public and gruesome, reminiscent of the massacres committed during La Violencia, the war ravaging Colombia when Pablo was born. M-19 members were slashed with machetes and left on display with a Colombian necktie or refashioned entirely with the flower vase cut. On December 30th, 1981, 
A hysterical woman was discovered chained to an iron gate with a sign around her neck, identifying her as the wife of an M-19 member who had kidnapped Martha firsthand. But the woman and her child were both spared. The MAS mission statement forbade the killing of innocents and children. The violence continued until February 17, 1982, when M-19 had finally seen enough of its members mauled and dismembered. They surrendered, releasing Martha Ochoa to her family in good condition. Pablo's goal had been achieved. M-19 would think twice before kidnapping anyone else. And if a kidnapping was perpetrated, traffickers had another recourse beyond paying the ransom. But the formation of MAS had another unintended consequence. Cocaine traffickers had realized that they were stronger when they worked together. For the rest of the 1980s, the big Medellin players actively cooperated with each other. According to Pablo's brother, Roberto Escobar, the term Medellin cartel was created many years later by law enforcement because they needed an all-encompassing term for a large network of cocaine traffickers working in or near Medellin. The players never considered themselves a formal organization. They simply adhered to an understanding to cooperate and protect each other whenever possible. However, not all members of the Medellin cartel were exactly equal. A Medellin-based pilot who went by Ruben started smuggling cocaine for Jorge Ochoa in the mid-70s and ended up working more directly with Pablo in the early 80s. He said that Pablo was a gangster pure and simple. Everybody, right from the start, was afraid of him. Even later, when they considered themselves friends, everybody was afraid of him. Pablo demanded absolute loyalty. If he had any reason to question that loyalty, he would torture first, ask questions later. But for the most part, people stuck around because working with Pablo was extremely profitable. Whether Pablo was a supportive partner or a terror to his fellow traffickers, business improved for everyone when they started working with Pablo. By the early 1980s, Pablo had upgraded his fleet of prop planes to several DC-3s, passenger planes from the 1930s and 40s with a 95-foot wingspan. They could carry up to 6,000 pounds of cargo. Pablo went from two or three flights a week to keeping all the planes in his fleet constantly moving. Because now he was flying product for all the cocaine manufacturers in Medellin. Pablo might personally have 400 kilos to put on a plane, but since he'd invested in larger planes, he had plenty of space to carry additional product from his partners. Of course, Pablo took 35% of the profits from any cargo he transported. Each supplier's product was marked with a different brand name, like Coca-Cola, Yen, or USA. The pilot would be supplied with a manifest and would deliver the proper brands to the proper distributors after landing in the U.S. Of course, landing the planes was easier said than done. The tiny prop planes that Pablo started out with were relatively easy to land unnoticed. They didn't require a long landing strip, and their engines were pretty quiet. DC-3s were another story. Pablo had a variety of solutions. 
One of them was landing his planes in Jamaica, where he'd been able to pay off enough bureaucrats and airport employees that the planes could land and unload at commercial airports with no interference. From there, the cocaine would be loaded onto big, expensive speedboats and rushed to Florida. Another option was El Bombardeo, the bombardment. The product would be packed inside sturdy military duffel bags fitted with parachutes and dropped over designated sites like beaches or farms. But the best, most efficient option was to land the planes directly in Florida. Pablo's brother Roberto had a favorite landing strip hidden away in the Everglades. Way out in the swamp, far from other residential areas, there was a half-built housing development called Golden Glades. The streets were paved before environmentalists won their fight and the project scrapped. At night, the empty streets became a private airport for Pablo's planes. Pablo also diversified into ships. To sneak cocaine onto a cargo ship, he had to disguise it by embedding it into normal products. For this, he hired the best chemical engineers from all over the world and brought them to specially designed labs in the Colombian jungle. These world-class scientists developed a method to reversibly liquefy cocaine. Once it was liquefied, the cocaine could be added to Chilean wine, chemically mixed with flowers, or even soaked into blue jeans. After the products arrived at their destination, they would be received by a front company that, ostensibly, had ordered a large shipment of blue jeans. The jeans would be put through a specific washing process to draw out the cocaine. From there, the liquid cocaine would be processed into powder. When there was less time for processing, Pablo had a more straightforward approach. His engineers created an apparatus of PVC pipes that could hold about 50 kilos apiece. The pipes would attach to the hulls of the cargo ships with magnets. Without realizing it, ships headed from the South American coast to Florida would carry along a few extra kilos of cocaine. The magnets holding the PVC pipes to the hull were remote-controlled electromagnets. At a designated location, not too far from the shore, but well before the ship docked, the magnets would be deactivated. The pipes would drop down to the ocean floor. Divers outside the shipping lane would wait for the ship to pass and then swim to the bottom to retrieve their sunken treasure. With business booming like it never had before and emboldened by the backing from his peers, Pablo decided it was finally time to conquer his oldest dream. It was time to run for public office. Pablo Escobar was going to be a politician. Up next, Pablo takes his first step toward becoming president of Colombia. Now, back to the story. In late 1981, Pablo Escobar was 32 years old and at the peak of his power. His cocaine empire was making him millions of dollars a week. He had partners helping him expand across the U.S. and even into Western Europe. Pablo knew it was time to revisit his earliest dream, politics. He was sure he had the chops to become the president of Colombia. 
After all, it couldn't be harder than running a successful multi-million dollar cocaine business, right? Pablo's closest business partners, his brother Roberto and his cousin Gustavo, weren't supportive of his political aspirations. They were proud of the cocaine trafficking operation they'd helped build, and they knew their continued success depended on keeping a low profile. The scrutiny of a political campaign would bring complications at best, at worst, total destruction. But Pablo dismissed their concerns. He viewed his political aspirations as bigger and more important than his drug empire. If he was successful as a politician, maybe he wouldn't need the drug trade at all. He told Roberto, I want to help people the legal way, and I'm going to stay away from drug trafficking. In Pablo's eyes, his cocaine operation provided work for thousands of people, mostly peasants who had no other means of survival. But if he could secure a position in the government, perhaps he could provide for the poor in a legitimate way. But his political aspirations may also have been driven by another, more self-serving factor. In 1982, President Ronald Reagan declared drug trafficking a threat to United States national security. The U.S. was ready to capitalize on the extradition treaty they'd signed with Colombia in 1979. The extradition treaty meant that Colombian traffickers could be tried and sentenced in the U.S. for their international drug sales. When Reagan invoked national security, he designated drug crimes as on par with terrorism. So if U.S. law enforcement got their hands on Pablo, he would be facing a lifetime in a U.S. prison. But there was a loophole. If Pablo was elected to the Colombian Congress, he could advocate for Colombia to withdraw from the extradition treaty. And more importantly, Colombian law stipulated that members of Congress were immune from extradition. So in late 1981, Pablo dove headfirst into his political campaign. He was running as an alternate to the congressional representative in the municipality of Indigado, a suburb outside Medellin. In Colombia, each representative is elected alongside a running mate. This alternate fills in for the primary representative if they're unable to appear in Congress. Pablo ran alongside the primary candidate, Jairo Ortega. Pablo felt confident that he could have won the primary seat himself, but his choice to run for alternate indicates that he had internalized some of his brother Roberto's pleas for caution. Alternates had a lower profile and weren't the public focus, either during the campaign or during the term. It was a good compromise. Pablo got to make a move into politics, but hopefully without blowing the lid off his cocaine empire. Roberto should have known better. No matter where he was, Pablo was always the center of attention. For many generations, Colombia had been governed by the same ruling class. These wealthy elites were known among the poor as men of always. New leaders would be elected, but they were always from the same rich families, and their policies never supported Colombia's most vulnerable. Pablo fashioned his campaign around differentiating himself from the usual suspects. Pablo was already well-known as a philanthropist responsible for meaningful projects like Medellin Sintugurios, 
Medellin without shanty towns, which constructed housing for poor people whose homes had been destroyed in a fire. Pablo had also taken care of a myriad of individuals who came to him for help. He paid for tuition, medical care for AIDS and cancer patients, and whenever Medellin suffered a disaster like flooding, Pablo always made sure there was shelter and food for the victims. He even paid for engineers to advise on their reconstruction effort so that future floods would cause less damage. Pablo always held his rallies in the poorest neighborhoods of his district. Thousands of people would gather hours ahead of time so they could get a coveted spot close to the stage. Before Pablo came on stage, his campaign staff unfurled a banner with his slogan, Pablo Escobar, a man of the people, a man of action, a man of his word. After the banners were hung, two small children, Pablo's young niece and nephew, appeared on stage. They were so tiny, people in the back of the crowd couldn't even see them. Together, the children sang a campaign song written by Pablo's mother, Hemilda. And finally, the man himself appeared on stage, in the same outfit he always wore, tennis shoes, jeans, and a t-shirt. His appearance was always spotless, but casual. He presented himself like he could be just another man in the crowd. Many years ago, he was. In these moments, before a cheering crowd of supporters, Pablo had never felt more optimistic about his future and the future of Colombia. He saw a different world laid out before him, and he was the one to bring the change. In his speeches, Pablo would tell the crowd about the future he saw. I'm tired of the powerful people running this country. This is a fight between those powerful people and the poor and the weak people. We have to start with that. Being powerful doesn't mean you can abuse the poor. Some of Pablo's campaign promises were small, like buying books for the local schools and painting the church. Others were big, like lobbying to pull Colombia out of the extradition treaty with the U.S. The crowd ate it up like candy. After Pablo finished speaking, his bodyguards would come on stage with suitcases full of money. The crowd surged closer to the stage. There was pushing and shoving for position. Pablo's bodyguards handed cash to everyone close, and on Pablo's orders, they always gave extra to young people and the elderly. In March of 1982, Pablo was elected a deputy and alternative representative to the Colombian Congress. It was an easy win. Pablo knew he could depend on the support of the poor in Medellin, where he was already a legend. But that didn't translate to support nationwide. Congress met in Bogota, Colombia's capital, and it might as well have been a different planet from Pablo's home. Pablo knew that if he was going to change the system, he would first have to learn to operate within it. To fit in among the wealthy ruling class, his history as a drug trafficker would have to stay buried. To pave the way for his congressional debut in the summer of 1983, Pablo initiated a major publicity campaign. He hired PR experts and paid off journalists to write favorable profiles of him. He even founded a newspaper called Medellin Civica, 
and used it to paint a portrait of himself as a clever businessman, generous philanthropist, and passionate Colombian nationalist. In April 1983, the magazine Semana labeled Pablo the country's Robin Hood. Those who didn't already know Pablo as a drug trafficker now knew him as an up-and-coming political star. But there was one very important member of the government that saw right through Pablo's propaganda. Rodrigo Lara Bonilla was 35, handsome, and already had a full term in the Senate under his belt. He was another rising political star, newly appointed to President Belisario Betancourt's cabinet as Minister of Justice, and he had his sights set squarely on Pablo Escobar. Before the newly elected Congress returned to session in the summer of 1983, Lara hinted in the press that the new congressman from Envigado had accepted drug money during their campaigns. Behind closed doors, Lara was more forthright. He knew Pablo was a drug trafficker, and Lara intended to make an example out of him. Word of Lara's accusations made their way to Pablo and his primary representative, Jairo Ortega. They made their own plans to strike back. On August 16, 1983, Pablo made his first congressional appearance. As he entered the hallowed building, surrounded by a phalanx of bodyguards, he appeared neither nervous nor excited. As in all his business, he didn't allow his emotions to play on the surface. But everyone watching could see that he was a foreigner in a strange land. Pablo wore a cream suit, his shirt open at the collar. He looked downright flamboyant among the more conservative dark suits of his compatriots. None of the other congressmen, and certainly not their alternates, entered the building with bodyguards. Things got worse when Pablo approached the door to the congressional chamber. The doorman stopped him from entering. He hadn't adhered to the dress code. If he wanted to enter, he needed to wear a tie. This kind of formality was exactly what Pablo wanted to eradicate from government, but the doorman wouldn't budge. Finally, Pablo borrowed a lively floral tie from one of his bodyguards, and he was admitted to the chamber. Pablo took his place alongside Jairo Ortega, his bodyguards crowding around him. The observation deck was packed with press and spectators. Pablo felt they were here to see him. Usually he loved an audience, but he had never been in a situation where he didn't control all the variables. He felt like an unwanted guest in a supercilious neighbor's home. Nerves started to get to him. He chewed on his fingers. Then. He pulled off the mandatory tie. Immediately, he felt better. Pablo knew who he was and why he was here. A fancy congressional floor or a power-hungry doorman wasn't going to change that. When the session started, Pablo's primary representative, Jairo Ortega, had the floor first, and he'd come prepared. At every seat, there was a photocopy of a check for a million pesos written out to Pablo's nemesis, Rodrigo Lara. Ortega explained to his fellow congressmen that the check was a campaign donation to Lara from a convicted drug trafficker. 
Ortega knew that Lara had made certain accusations about unsavory donations to his own campaign, and he just wanted to set the record straight. Lara was guilty of the same sin. When order returned to the congressional floor, Lara made a very polite and brief retort, welcoming the press and his political enemies to perform a deep examination of his morality. He had nothing to hide. The subtext was clear. He was not going to back down from a fight. Pablo would never admit it, but he was rattled. He pushed his way out of the building through a thick crowd of reporters. As soon as he had access to a phone, he ordered his lawyers to draft a letter to Lara. He had 24 hours to present evidence backing up his claims about Pablo's actions as a drug trafficker, or he'd face a lawsuit. He asked for evidence, and he received it. On August 25, 1983, nine days after Pablo's notorious congressional debut, the national Colombian newspaper, El Espectador, published a familiar photograph on their front page. It was Pablo's 1976 mugshot from his very first cocaine arrest. The photograph of a grinning, self-satisfied criminal undid the entire narrative Pablo had spent nearly a year creating. The article described how Pablo had paid off judges to assure an acquittal and questioned why many of his criminal records were now missing. Pablo's employees sped around Medellin, collecting every copy of the newspaper they could find. But their efforts to suppress the article only reinforced the ruinous story. The story triggered another investigation into the deaths of the DAS agents that had gone after Pablo. A new warrant was issued for Pablo's arrest, and Lara requested that Congress revoke Pablo's immunity from extradition. To add more humiliation, all the animals that populated Pablo's zoo at Hacienda Napoles were repossessed by the Colombian government. Pablo was fined 450,000 pesos for the illegal importation of the animals. Pablo renounced the El Espectador story in a live television interview. He claimed his fortune came from construction, but trying to avoid becoming like the political hypocrites he so desperately hated, Pablo also voiced his support for the drug trade, arguing that it had brought prosperity to Colombia. It was a step too far. Pablo had lost all public support. His political career was over, and he was a much more visible target for arrest and extradition. Everything Roberto and Gustavo had feared was coming true. There was no backing down now. Lara and Pablo were faced off for war. Lara was fighting for the integrity of his country, but Pablo was fighting for his life. Lara wouldn't realize he was engaged in a battle to the death until it was too late. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Come back next week to hear about Pablo's spectacular falling out with the Colombian government and how it resulted in the bloodiest decade in Colombia's history. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.